Well, beginning in November of last year, we began what I would call a discipleship journey as a church that was very intentional, very on purpose. And this is related, of course, to the kickoff of our Joyful Generosity campaign. We just had Commitment Sunday last week, very exciting. Next Sunday, we'll enjoy Celebration Sunday. But what this was was really an opportunity for us to dig deeply and invest in the life of the church, the maturity of the church, and the preached word does its work. You have given testimony uh, to me personally. I've gotten emails. I've, I've talked to you in person in, in various other means. You've given testimony of changes in attitude, of personal sanctification, of, of focusing on your holiness in every area of life, seeing your Christ-likeness improve my estimation is that we have had a profound, purifying experience as a church together. We started last November by preaching a five-message series through John chapter 12 called A Faith Checkup, testing genuine faith in Christ, and it all has to do with how we respond to Christ. Then we did a series called Our Gift to Jesus, a detailed study of the Church of Jerusalem, bolstering our understanding of what the local church is really to be all about. And then finally, we got to the very specific area of Christian obedience, having to do with finances and giving, the heart attitude in response to salvation of joyful generosity. And we built a theology of why we give. And in the life of Grace Bible Church, this has been kind of the longest-running intentional discipleship time we've ever had normally my practice is to simply preach verse by verse through whatever book we happen to be in. But we took this intentional time, and if you chose to make use of the 18 messages that we presented in those three series from this pulpit to listen, to learn, to grow, to mature, your view of the gospel, your view of the church, your view of Christ, your view of how to use your possessions, all that has to do with being a Christian, it should have grown tremendously. And I've heard testimony of this heard your words and heard your encouragement. And so today I want to wrap up all of these concepts. I want to put, pull it all together and kind of put a bow on it, putting what we've learned to work. And specifically taking all of those elements and putting them together into being what I'm calling a joyful church family. Nobody wants to go to a church that depresses you. We want to be a part of a church family that is, that is filled with joy. So to help us do that, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 21. Now, one of the issues dealt with in the book of Romans is Paul's concern that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers fellowship in harmony. There's a long backstory behind that, which I don't have time for this morning. But as you read through Romans, you see Paul emphasizing unity, unity, unity. And it's all under the gospel of faith, the gospel of Christ. In the first 11 chapters, Paul gives his brilliant theology of the gospel, really the, the culmination of his life's work in many ways. In chapter 12, as is his habit, he gives the outworking of this theology, what we're to do, what the church is to do as a result. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is a general exhortation to worship Christ by offering your life wholly to him in every aspect, being a living sacrifice. And then beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12 through verse 8, we see the unity of the body of Christ specifically worked out, how it's worked out in the local assembly, what we have right here, and how the Holy Spirit has given spiritual gifts to be used here in the context of the local church, which then leads Paul, still in the context of the life of the church, 
to give this lengthy and bullet-pointed, this staccato list of how we are to function as a church. Now, many of your Bibles may have a subheading at verse 9 of chapter 12 that says, Marks of a True Christian. And that's useful and that's true. That's not the point of this passage. What this actually is, is we could call it Paul's membership manifesto. What a church member is to be about. This is the, the official formal identification with a local church. The membership in the church is clearly scriptural. It's not my goal to prove that point today. We've done that many other times. So I want to talk to you about Paul's membership manifesto. We're going to do this topically, so let me just read the entire text to you, and then we'll organize it a little bit differently. Romans 12, beginning of verse 9, the Apostle Paul, continuing in his exhortation to the church, says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So this is Paul's membership manifesto, and we're going to organize it like one. Five articles to this manifesto, and then we're going to have some sub-principles under that. So if you're a note taker, get your hand warmed up today. Five articles of this manifesto. Article one, authentic love. Authentic love. And the first principle under that will say, love with a whole heart. So article one, authentic love, Love with a whole heart. Verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine. This is a word that means without hypocrisy. It's a real love for one another. It's actual. John Calvin commented on this verse. He said, It is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they really do not possess. So what is genuine love? This is allowing yourself to be vulnerable. It's based on the commonality of the gospel. It's, it's genuine. It's heartfelt affection. It's real. It's affection for the members. It's affection for the leaders. I love Grace Bible Church, and one of the reasons, quite honestly, is the, the affection that I've been blessed to receive. I've sensed the heartfelt affection from this church. But I've also been around long enough to know when it's not real. I've been around long enough to know when love is being held back between members or from members to leaders. This is usually manifested by a critical spirit, by looking down on those around you. It's manifested by keeping a record of wrongs, as 1 Corinthians 13 says not to do, things to be used later should the need arise. So what does it mean to have love be genuine? Well, Paul describes genuine love 
by appealing to the filial relationship, the family relationship of the church. In verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. This is family affection. We, we don't treat the local church like it's a club or a grocery store, and as soon as it makes me mad, I'm going to switch. That's a consumer mentality. Yes, family relationships get sticky sometimes, right? But we are to regard one another as those for whom Christ died. We are to regard one another with brotherly affection. In fact, Paul gives some very practical advice about these family relationships. He says in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Honor. This is showing deference to someone as if someone is more important to you. Honor to leaders. Honor to each other. Honor to one another as, as beloved siblings in Christ. I grew up in a tradition where in the church you addressed everybody as brother and sister and their last name. That was a, that was a beautiful thing that we reminded ourselves of our family relationship. I think this principle alone could revolutionize how we interact with one another. It could revolutionize how we relate to each other because it informs everything you do. Am I showing honor to this person? How are you doing, by the way, with how you allow yourself to think about others? Are you thinking the best? Are you thanking God for their faith in Christ? Are you cultivating thoughts of honor and love and cherishing your siblings in Christ? Because if you win the battle of the mind, you win the battle of the mouth. Article one, authentic love. Second principle, love with a welcoming heart. Love with a welcoming heart. Second half of verse 13, Paul says, and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Now, our cultural pictures of hospitality immediately limit our thinking here. Immediately we think, well, that means have somebody over for dinner. That's kind of what we think of hospitality. That can be part of this, but that's not what the word means. It's not the main thrust here. Hospitality is a compound word in Greek that simply means be a friend to a stranger. To be a friend to a stranger. Be a friend to someone you don't know who isn't part of the family, so to speak. And there's so many implications for this. There's implications for how you should treat guests. Have you ever come to a, a church for the first time and you had the feeling everybody was just staring at you like you were the ugly cousin no, nobody invited? Well, that's not how we're to be. There are implications for how many relationships you should form in the church to be aware that, yes, you have your old friendships, but be ready for new ones too. There's certainly implications for evangelism, keeping an eye out for opportunities to spread the gospel to those outside the family of God. We're to be hospitable. We're to be a friend to strangers. That's part of being loving. And by the way, the command is not wait for someone to be hospitable. It's be hospitable. It's an active verb. Article one, authentic love. There's a third piece to this. Love with a vulnerable heart. Love with a vulnerable heart. Verse 15, and I've preached this verse before and I will again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And this is grammatically connected to verse 9, which says, let love be genuine. Because in Greek, the verse 15, these are participles. That you let love be genuine, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. That that's what genuine love does. What does it mean to have a vulnerable heart? It means you're here. It means you're engaged. It means that you know when someone is rejoicing. You know when someone is weeping. That, that implies involvement in their lives. It means you're vulnerable. You're real. You're accessible. You're accountable. 
You're engaged at a level where you're caring for one another in deep, intimate ways. And I understand this. People will say, oh, but I've been so hurt before. Can I tell you this? You will be again. You will be again because that's the nature of love amongst sinners. But shutting down and staying inward, that's not the solution. That's not what we're called to do. I know everyone is built differently. Some people can maintain a hundred relationships across the board. Others are built for one or two. But have some. Have somebody you're weeping with. Somebody you're rejoicing with. Article one, authentic love. Fourth piece to this. Love with a selfless heart. Love with a selfless heart. Verse 17, right near the end, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What does this mean? It it means think of the welfare of the church in your relationships. And I gotta tell you, that's rare. That's rare where somebody says, I'm gonna do this because this is what's good for the church. Verse 19 restates the same principle. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I think the most common response to these verses is, well, that must be speaking about relationships with unbelievers. Now, that certainly applies, but we're still functioning in the church. Listen, I've been in ministry long enough to see vengeance happen inside the walls of the church. It does happen. Gossip and snubbing, uh, guilt-inducing comments, passive-aggressive, subtle messages. Uh, Revenge comes in many flavors. And it happens in the church. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. What a terrible witness. The principle, what is good for the church, is so healthy, it's so good for us, that just because you're upset with one person or even with a leader doesn't mean it's okay to leave a trail of destruction for other people to clean up. This is a fabulous principle. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Can I put it this way? What would you do if everyone was watching what a Christian does? If you had an audience? Well, Apostle Paul tells us what to do. In verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this is interesting. Paul is quoting here from Proverbs 25, but there's a finishing phrase in that proverb that's very, very instructive to us. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. What a key idea here. Your goal is to please God. Your goal is to satisfy God. Your goal is to obey God. And this no longer becomes about a a horizontal relationship. This becomes about your vertical relationship. Why do we feed our enemy? Why do we treat those who don't like us as if they're our best friend? Because God said so. It's very simple. Now, again, the easy thing to do is to say, well, clearly this must be speaking outside the bounds of the church. Philippians 4 records that Euodia and Syntyche, two women in the Philippian church, couldn't get along and had to have a guy named Syzicus called the True Companion mediate between them so they didn't claw each other's eyes out. The Apostle Paul sent Mark home for disloyalty on a missionary journey. The Apostle Paul publicly confronted Peter about legalism in Galatians 2. The church at Pergamum had false teachers infiltrate. Demas deserted Paul in his hour of greatest need. This is in the church. This is in the church. So we're to be kind and loving with a goal in mind. 
heap burning coals on his head. Now, what is that talking about? Well, this is almost certainly a reference to a very well-known ancient Egyptian custom that when a person wanted to show public shame for some sort of offense or crime, he would carry a pan on his head filled with coals from the fire to say, this is the burning pain of my guilt. And so to heap coals on someone's head, you picture them with a pan and, and with your kindness and your graciousness, you're just shoveling these coals in there and just piling it on so that they're just sweltering. What are you doing? You're piling on shame by your graciousness and your kindness and your goodness. Article one, authentic love. Article two, we'll call purposeful Christ-likeness. Purposeful Christ-likeness. And the first principle under purposeful Christ-likeness, live in joy. Live in joy. Verse 12 says that we are to rejoice in hope. Now, rejoice, as you might imagine, is a very popular word in the New Testament. It's used about 75 times to speak of being glad, being joyful. It is an outward manifestation of your inward reality. True Christian joy isn't about some emotional experience. It's about being grounded in the truth, truths such as the certain hope that your salvation has been secured by the work of Christ, the certain hope that the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption, the certain hope that God will not drop the ball in your life. He'll always be faithful. The certain hope that you can look heavenward and be grounded in that reality of coming heavenly destiny. But Christian joy, it's, it's infectious, it's contagious, and it manifests itself in so many ways. Choosing to not complain about everything. Speaking of your hope and joy in the Lord. Deflecting praise for yourself and honoring the Lord. Not panicking about every setback in life. Not expecting those around you to be continually focused on you because you're content in Christ. So we live in joy. Second part of purposeful Christ-likeness we'll call suffer in faith. Suffer in faith. Verse 12 also says, be patient in tribulation. One of the real measures of the maturity of a believer in Christ is how they view and how they respond to natural human suffering. Your theology of suffering is the window to see what you believe about God and what you believe about God is the most important thing that you ever think. And how you view suffering tells us that. And as a result, a church's view of suffering as a whole, this determines the composite maturity of the church in many ways. And this is why we've spent significant time developing at Grace Bible Church a proper theology of suffering. I've preached several sermon series on this topic, two of them very lengthy ones. I did an estimation of all the messages I've preached at Grace Bible Church. About 15% of them are on the topic of suffering. It's important. But Paul really boils down this proper theology of suffering to this one statement, be patient in tribulation. What does that mean? Well, very simply, it means don't panic. Trust the Lord. Seek the Lord. Wait on the Lord. All the things that you've been taught here for, for years now. But again, this series of admonitions is in the context of how we act as members. And so we can extrapolate that we ought to help one another be patient in tribulation as well. I've told the story before of a time that I had a horrible case of the flu and I was 
in a in a drugstore waiting for my medicine to be ready and a fellow believer walked up and he's somebody who's not really socially gifted and he said what are you doing here and i said well i have the flu and i i listed all of my symptoms and everything and i really just laid it out there and he looked at his watch and said well good luck with that and walks off (laughs) i was like thank you for that tenderness of compassion there what he could have said is can i pray for you can you wait on the lord you know, it's just the flu, big baby. Do you still have everything else? He could have encouraged me and exhorted me. Come alongside and pray and love and cherish one another. Encourage one another to trust God, to wait on the Lord faithfully. We need each other for that. We need each other. Purposeful Christ-likeness. Third part, speak in blessing. Speak in blessing. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, because this is written in the context of the local church, it's safe to say that the the idea of persecution here isn't used in the technical sense of being, uh, of suffering for your faith. It just means those who are coming against you verbally. What does it mean to bless then? Well, this is a speaking word. It has to do with the words that you say. In other words, don't go to someone else to tear a a third person down. Don't go to that person just to tear them down. Don't use words as weapons. To curse is a word that speaks of verbal abuse, even intimidation, and it specifically expresses a hope for future disaster. I hope he gets what's coming to him. I hope the Lord judges that person. We're not to do that. That's tantamount to verbally taking vengeance. So what do we do? Well, we bless. It's a word that we get our word eulogy from. In a eulogy, we speak the best about a deceased person. You've probably never heard a eulogy like this. Old Ralph was a great guy. When he wasn't drunk, he was easy to get along with. On the days he decided to show up to work, he usually worked almost till noon. And when he did choose to come home at night, sometimes he played with his kids. That's not a eulogy. There's an awkward silence because you say, That's not what I want said about me. Do you say about others what you wish they would say about you? My grandmother used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say what? Anything. Article 2, Purposeful Christlikeness, fourth part, act in obedience. Act in obedience. Verse 21, very end of the chapter, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't make sinful decisions based on emotion, based on pure desire, based in provocation. An emotional decision is usually an irrational decision, and an irrational decision is almost always a sinful decision. You can count on that. I've heard this as a pastor numbers of times. I know the right thing to do, but I just can't. Wrong. You just won't. It's really that simple. Obedience to Christ is not something that mature Christians pursue. It's something that genuine Christians pursue. In fact, that is the test of genuineness. There's a very simple three-step process to obedience. Step one, what's my situation? Step two, what does the Bible say? Step three, why am I not doing that? Very simple. Now, let me give you an easy way to remember the motivation to overcome. Remember the word overcome, evil with good. The Greek word for overcome is nikao, which means to have victory, to win something. This is from the the root word Nike, most famously pronounced wrongly in our culture, Nike. What's the 
world-famous slogan of Nike. Everybody say it. Just do it. What's the motivation for overcoming evil with good? Because God said so. Not because you feel like it. Not because God led me to do this sinful thing. I've heard that a thousand times. Well, I prayed and God led me to leave the church for this really stupid reason. No, he didn't. You should have read his word. Why do we obey? Because he said so. Why can I call you to be godly husbands, men? Because God said so. Why can I call you ladies to be honorable wives? Because God said so. Why can I call you to serve in the church? Because God said so. That is our motive. We just do it. Article one, authentic love. Article two, purposeful Christ-likeness. We're building Paul's manifesto here. Article three, we'll call enthusiastic body life enthusiastic body life. And we're going to have a bunch of verbs here with the word enthusiasm attached to them. The first part of enthusiastic body life, attend with enthusiasm. Attend with enthusiasm. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Zeal is a word that means to be in a hurry to do something, to be eager. And I can easily apply this to attendance because that's always the first step to the engaged body life of a member. Someone who says, I love the church, or I love the people, rather, who constitute my local church, but has a slothful, lazy attitude about regular attendance, they don't really love the church that much. It's like telling your wife, I love you a lot, and I hope to see you sometime. That's not real love. And certainly, there's not thinking that there's a major need for the intake of God's word. Listen, if you're attending out of a sense of discipline, we've got it wrong. The, the point is not to just get more discipline. The point is to change your heart about how you think about attendance. And I've seen this transformation in so many of you. I've seen the transformation because your testimony says, I hate to miss a Sunday. I have to be here because it's no longer a discipline. It's simply a desire. And you're fulfilling that desire. If you need to take a week's vacation, why not schedule it Monday to Saturday? Why is missing the gathering of God's people so much easier than missing work? Why not try to figure out how to be here on Sunday nights? Why not try to figure out how to be in a small group? Why not live your life in the church? Why not? Article 3, enthusiastic body life. Second part, fellowship with enthusiasm. Fellowship with enthusiasm. Verse 11 continues, be fervent in spirit. This is an emotional word. I know this is Grace Bible Church, and Bible churches are famous for being unemotional. Well, this is an emotional word. It means there's no way around this. Get excited about being here. This isn't someone else generating this excitement. It's, it's your decision. It's you saying, I am part of a local assembly with precious believers in Christ. The gospel is proclaimed. The word of God is exalted and taught. I'm being fed. I'm going to be fervent in spirit about this fellowship. I'm going to make that attitude decision. If you just, for whatever reason, can't bring yourself to have this sort of all-in attitude about your local church, I got to tell you, you're missing such a blessing. You're missing such a blessing. I mean, our, our family, we basically do two things, family and church. That's what we do. Our duty and our joy is to fellowship with enthusiasm. Article three, enthusiastic body life. Third part, serve with enthusiasm. Serve with enthusiasm. The end of verse 11, 11, serve the Lord. It's the verb 
Duluo, and it's, it's a verb form of doulos, which we've talked about. It means be a slave. Be a slave. Paul just told you how. He lists the spiritual gifts in the church in the early part of chapter 12. A related word is used multiple times in the New Testament. Soon doulos. It means literally to be together servants. Servants together. This is a key concept. This is speaking of serving as one of the members, not as a so-called objective outside observer. And that's why, by the way, we, insert, we insist that anybody serving in the church be a member or a child of a member that's learning to serve while under their parents' authority. Because how can we be together servants? How can we be a soon doulas, soon douloi, plural, if we're not first together in doctrine and commitment and in submission? It doesn't make sense. We have to be together. Now, Paul has just given us a list of spiritual gifts we use in the church, verses 4 through 8. But don't let that give you the wrong idea that this is a reason to not serve in some area. Years ago, Charles Swindoll famously said, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, use all of them, and the one you're good at is the one you have. But listen carefully. Spiritual gifts are a guide to keep us from doing something we're flatly unqualified to do. It's not an excuse to allow us to just not do something because we don't want to. There's a difference between saying, I don't want to do that, therefore I'm going to use the phrase, that's not my gift. That's not the point. The, the phrase, that's not my gift, has to do with, are you going to be fully qualified spiritually to do this thing? Let me give you an example. Children's ministry. How many of you have been professionally trained to deal with children. Raise your hand and leave them up. Leave them up. How many have or have had children? Raise your hand and leave them up. All of you are fully qualified for children's ministry and God has given you kids to practice on and mess up on. You know what God has done for us as a church and I brought, him, brought them up here for a reason. He gave us all these little rascals, very cute ones, right inside our walls, to whom you can proclaim the gospel. Oh, children's ministry is not glamorous at all. I've been involved in children's ministry. I walked into one classroom once, and the first thing I did was to clean up the vomit that somebody had just deposited on the floor. It's like, well, how is this serving the Lord? It's not always fun. If you've served in the twos and threes, we see them crawling out, begging for help. I understand that. But did you know that the children's ministry at Grace Bible Church is the, the biggest evangelistic and discipleship ministry we have? Did you know that? We have little reprobates coming within our walls every week. You're forcing them to be here as they should be. The children don't know if you're gifted. They don't care about that. They just know that you're there. Honestly, if I could say this, if you have children who are children's ministry age right now, you ought to be serving at some level. And somebody might say, well, how, how can holding a toddler on my knee, how is that eternal work? Jesus thought it was. He routinely stopped everything to say, let the children come to me. I want to I play with them. I want to be with them. Can I ask you this? If we neglect our children, why should we expect the Lord to bring us other unbelievers? Let's minister to the ones that you're bringing in your minivans every week. Authentic body life. Fourth principle, pray with enthusiasm. Pray with enthusiasm. Verse 12, oh, what a great verse. One of, one of my 
favorite little phrases here. Just be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. It, it speaks of a lifestyle. It, it speaks of not so much discipline, but just an automatic breathing in and out the Spirit of God and all the needs that are happening in the church. A major part of your prayer life should be the concerns of the church. Don't get away with just, and God bless Grace Bible Church. Oh, you should know names and you should know things that are happening and you should know what to rejoice about and what to weep about. That's the battleground that God has called you to. We have members suffering physically, members suffering morally, members suffering, suffering emotionally. We have marriages that Satan hates. We have children that Satan wants to destroy. We have evangelistic opportunities. Satan wants to derail. Those little children that were up here, Satan is trying to get them to hell. We have a mission as a church that Satan despises, but we have a God who answers prayer. We are to be constant in prayer. As you're, as you're driving to church, you should be in prayer. Our family enjoys praying together here, and we pray for you. We don't just pray for our family. We pray for you. You should be leaving in prayer, thinking about what you've learned and asking the Lord to nail those nails deeply in your heart and those you've spoken to, and how can you minister to them? How can you love them? Be constant. Enthusiastic body life, fifth, includes give with enthusiasm. Verse 13, give to the needs of the saints. I won't belabor this point much because we've been this over this for several weeks, but it does bring up the question, what are the needs of the saints? Obviously, at face value, the physical needs of the saints can be met with financial or practical help. We ought to do that. But the needs of the saints goes far beyond the physical needs. We need the preached word of God desperately. That's the top of the list. We need to rightfully be stewards of whatever property the Lord gives to us to the glory of God. We need to be healthy by contributing to missions as good for us. And we need to take care of the legitimate needs within our body. So we give regularly, we give generously to support the preached word, to support the stewardship of our facility, special projects of the church, missions, needs within our body. This is a really, really simple concept. That if you're able to give, but you choose not to give, then everything you're receiving at Grace Bible Church is being paid for by somebody else. And I've said this before, try going to a restaurant and ordering a steak dinner and then taking the bill and leaving it on someone else's table. They will chase you down. Instead, let's share that joy together. Article one, authentic love. Article two, purposeful Christ-likeness. Article three, enthusiastic body life. Article four, we're building this manifesto, active discipleship. Active discipleship. The end of verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. And we can extract several principles for this under active discipleship. First, learn with eagerness. Learn with eagerness. We're going to attach some descriptors to the word learn. Learn with eagerness. The very word disciple means a learner. It's somebody who grasps information. The opportunity you have to learn here is such a privilege. We have the Word of God coming at you from many different angles. I won't try to explain to you how I came to this number, but it was complicated. But I calculated that if you took notes on every sermon on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and one time through Fundamentals of the Faith and one time through Bible Training Institute, that you would come away with anywhere between three and 5,000 pages of notes if that were physically possible. What is physically possible 
Myself, personally, I bring about 2,200 pages of notes every year to this pulpit. None of them the same. Why? Because the well of truth we have to draw from is literally endless. It's endless. And this is so important because we love God in proportion to how we know him. And we love each other in proportion to how we know God. Philippians 1 verse 9 says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. Where does love come from? It comes from knowing God. You can't just have an emotional love appeal. You have to know the God who is love. The second part of active discipleship, learn with humility. Learn with humility. And this happens in the church, and I understand that. I, I'm, I've never been one to shy away from just directing, saying something directly. If you're listening purely to evaluate, can I just save you the trouble and just stay home? You want to know why? You've already lost the battle for your own sanctification. You've lost that battle because the word of God only does its work in those who bow in humility before its truths. Your awe of scripture should be such that you realize you probably won't come to a correct conclusion in five seconds of unemotional, unstudied thought. You probably won't. Now, we definitely want you to be like the Bereans of Acts 17 who search the scriptures. It's okay to disagree. I want you to wrestle with theological issues. I want you to wrestle with the truths of God. But if you want to disagree with honesty and integrity, there's four things you have to do. Anybody who wants to come disagree with me, that's fine, but I'm going to give you this list. First one is, answer the question, is this worth it? Is it worth it? Is this worthy of pointing out my disagreement? Am I engaging in a debate for its own sake because it's fun? Or am I truly trying to grow here? The second thing you must do, do the same amount of homework that was done by the one you're agreeing with, whether it's an elder or some other teacher or myself, do the same amount of homework. Reading a blog for 90 seconds and deciding to form a theological opinion on that is not homework. You do your homework. And the third thing you must do, use a proper hermeneutic to disagree in other words, if the way you choose to disagree is to use a different method to interpret Scripture, then we're comparing apples to oranges. You have to use a, a valid method. We don't interpret the Bible with one verse by the way we interpret one verse with the Bible. That is a clear principle. And most importantly, use the Word of God to form your position instead of anger, bitterness, and emotion. Once in a while, somebody who's very emotional will say, well, that's unbiblical. Well, just saying that doesn't make it true. You have to show that. I was so deeply impacted by one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Bill Barrick. If you walk by Dr. Barrick, your IQ will go up by 10 points. <laughs> He's the master of 19 ancient languages. He can read Egyptian hieroglyphics like it's English. He's a theological thinker. He's a writer. His IQ more resembles the Dow Jones Industrial Average than a normal number. He will never attend a church in which his pastor is smarter than he is. I'll never forget one day in class, I remember Dr. Barrett talking about his own pastor and how he learns something from him each and every Sunday and how he takes notes because he wants to learn something new from that text, some way that he can apply that text to his life to be more like Christ that week. And I heard him speaking with great joy and love about his own pastor who probably had an IQ one-third of his. 
and say, I'm so thankful for him and how he pours God's word into my life. That's humility. And if a man like that can submit to learning, we all can. I submit to my mentors every week. Men like Dan Wallace and Kenneth Matthews and Thomas Schreiner and Andreas Kostenberger and Eugene Merrill and Sidney Gradanis and Paul House and Alan Ross and Mark Rooker and Michael Grisanti, John Walvard. You might say, who are all those men? Those are the men who sit on the shelves around me. And they inform my heart and they guard my heart and they, they teach me and they mentor me, they correct me. I don't know how many times I've gone through 20 commentaries and the 19th one corrected my position because his argument was so solid. I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful for the humility of learning. Active discipleship. Third, learn with worship. Oh, if we just learn to get stuff in our heads, it's a lost cause. The reason we want you to learn is because that's what elevates your worship. It elevates your awe of God. It it, it points you heavenward. It points you toward Christ. And we know from 1 Corinthians 1.8 that knowledge alone puffs up. It makes arrogant. It has that potential. But knowledge directed toward a bigger view of God, a smaller view of self, and a more comprehensive view of Scripture, this leads to doxology. It leads to giving glory to God. This is what the Apostle Paul did at the end of chapter 11. Look with me at verse 33. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is worship that is generated by the knowledge of God. Listen, the act of learning with your whole mind and your heart is an act of worship because you're seeking after God. Sometimes I have the opportunity to speak to students and I always tell them you should be applying your minds the same way on Sunday mornings that you do during the week in school. And for you adults that sometimes you don't remember how to do that exactly, Sunday morning should be honestly when you are the sharpest intellectually, when you are ready to go and ready to think because you're seeking God. Three times in Psalm 119, the idea of seeking God is equated with knowing his word. Not seeking a mystical experience, but seeking the riches of who he is. Well, let's do one more article. Authentic love, purposeful Christ-likeness, enthusiastic body life, active discipleship. Article five, humble submission. Humble submission. The first four articles are useless without the last one first part of humble submission have a high regard for scripture have a high regard for scripture verse 9 very beginning again it says abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good the only way we know what's evil and what is good is through the singular standard of authority the word of god there is no other source for us there is no other opinion this is stated in the context of genuine love in fact dr robert mounts wrote that love quote if it is not to degenerate into sentimentality, must include a strict objectivity, hatred against evil, and faithful adherence to what is good. A healthy church is not characterized by unity at all costs. That's not healthy. A healthy church is characterized by unity based in sound doctrine. And to try to synthesize what Scripture teaches, we have a doctrinal statement. Our what we teach statement is what we call it. It's a mini systematic theology. 
Our doctrinal statement, honestly, I think needs to be longer. It's not a creed. A creed tries to reduce big theological concepts into a single sentence. It's a vigorous doctrinal position. And that's why in order to stay unified, we ask our members to be willing to live under the doctrinal statement of Grace Bible Church, either in full agreement or without discord in any area you believe differently. This high regard for Scripture saturates everything we do. We bow down to the authority of Scripture. It should be reflected in how the elders make decisions. Listen, behind closed doors, you know what the elders do when we're unsure about something? We ask the question, what does the Bible say? Because that's our authority. What does the head of the church tell us? This should be reflected in preaching, in Sunday school uh, teaching, any events of any kind. Our discipleship, our children's ministry is saturated with Scripture. And listen, I'm a bulldog about this. As I peruse the ministries of the church, if something has gone a little bit off into human opinion and off Scripture, I'm going to be the first one to knock it back on track because that's our duty. Why do we pay attention to the public reading of Scripture? The Bible commands it. Why do we govern ourselves with a plurality of elders? The Bible commands it. Why do we exercise church discipline and restoration? The Bible commands it. Why do we sing? Why do we preach? Why do we preach Christ? Why do we preach election, regeneration, sanctification, justification, glorification? All because the Bible commands it. We have the head of the church. Can I say this? Being Grace Bible Church should have a kick to it. It should mean something. Humble submission. The second part of humble submission, have a biblical regard for self. Have a biblical regard for self. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In other words, don't see yourself as separate or above others, that you need special treatment. By the way, there's a type of church member who perhaps sees himself or herself as a little bit above just the mere local church. I've been told this to my face. I love the whole church, not just this church. And that sounds really spiritual, but the whole church is not comprised of the ones who have the deepest relationships with you. The whole church is not the one that feeds your soul. Let me give you an example. Uh, Technically speaking, we're all genetically part of the same family, right? We're descended from Adam and from Noah. So try telling your family, I love the whole family, not just my family. That's not okay. This is the member that's never completely on board, never all in, not trusting, not very thankful. I've seen this for years, and I know it's always the case. But I would pray for you, and I would exhort you to remember that the church is the bride of Christ. We are the, we are the central ministry of what God is doing. Not parachurch organizations. God uses them, yes, but he never promised to bless them. Not homespun ministries. Yes, God can use those, but that's not what God promised to bless. He promised to bless the church. You know who my favorite church members are? Don't take this wrong. My favorite church members are the boring ones. You want to know Why? Because week after week and month after month and year after year and decade after decade, you attend, you give, you serve, you learn, you pray, you sing, you fellowship, you go to Bible studies, and you are as consistent as a clock. That's my favorite church member. That's the heartbeat, by the way, of how the Lord has built his church and evangelized the lost for 20 centuries. That's how he's done it. Humble submission. There's a third piece to this. Have an obedient regard for shepherding. 
have an obedient regard for shepherding. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. We've already covered having peace with one another, but this idea of living in harmony, it's specifically in Greek, it speaks of being single-minded, one mind. We have a together-mindedness, a common understanding. How do we get to be in one mind? Well, that comes through direction. It comes through leadership. Did you ever do one of those dreaded school group projects as a kid where you get four kids together and everyone's looking at each other trying to figure out who's in charge and what always happens. There's three lazy kids and the one A-plus student that everybody relies on, right? That's what always happens. It's in the Bible. That's always how it happens. (laughs) Why does something get done? Because of leadership. It provides unity. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says that one of the duties you have to your leaders, either elders or leaders who are appointed by the elders, is to be at peace among yourselves. This is not a hard concept. We have an obedient regard for shepherding in our ministry tasks. When an area of growth is pointed out, when you're asked to be a part of a a church program uh, by recognizing training and experience, that's not infallible, but it does mean something. There's a well-known command, which is not vague. It's not obscure. It's not hard to understand. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When I turned 50 a while back, a month or two ago, not really, I found a great freedom that when somebody wants to come challenge something that's happening in the church, sometimes I have the courage to say, hang on a second, is this going to cause me joy or groaning? Which one? Maybe reevaluate. Humble submission. There's a fourth piece to this. Have a loving regard for leaders. Have a loving regard for leaders. I'm going to borrow from 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Not because they're infallible, not because they don't make mistakes, not because of their great personality, not because they always do what you want, but simply because of their work. You have elders, you have deacons, you have paid staff, you have children's ministry leaders, women's ministry leaders, men's ministry leaders. We're to be a church filled with leaders as it ought to be. So we have a loving regard for them. And we come alongside them. This isn't self-serving for me to say this at all, this is a major part of what being a happy, content church member is about. There's no such thing as a disgruntled, happy church member. That person doesn't exist. Article 5, humble submission. One more. Have a peaceful regard for transition. Have a peaceful regard for transition. And I just want to talk about this openly. Churches ebb and flow. People come and go. I wish that wasn't the case, but it just is. I, I long for the day when you would arrive in the ancient world to a city and there was one church in that city and you had to either figure out how to deal with it or move on. But there's two basic categories of people who leave a local church. Those who do it honorably and those who do it sinfully. Those are the two categories. Those who do it honorably, there are realities in life, job transfers, getting married, things like that. We understand that. Those who do it sinfully, they do it for selfish preferences because of choosing to leave instead of working out something which would grow and mature them. Well, I'm just going to run away instead of deal with it. 
my experience in receiving people from other churches and seeing people go from our church, again, it's just a fact of life, is that the ones leaving sinfully bring shame to themselves. They bring shame on their former good reputation. They ruin the reputation they did have. They bring shame to the Lord. They embarrass the church. They put a black eye on everybody, forgetting, by the way, that they're rejecting all those who used to call them family. You're not rejecting an institution. You're rejecting people. And so in the spirit of honoring Christ, when transition is necessary, make it honorable, be pleasing. Listen, humble submission, this Article 5, including all five categories I've mentioned, this is so paramount in the life of the church. It's the medium that holds the church in communion. It's the mechanism of effective ministry that means something. It's the means by which God would have us demonstrate submission to Him. People say, I'll submit to God, just not to my leaders. No, you cannot choose. If you submit to God, you are submitting. This is the cry of the true Christian. Take up our cross. Deny ourselves. Follow Christ. No thought to my own welfare. Listen, one of the reasons... The reading the early chapters of the book of Acts is so refreshing, so exciting, so joyful, is that it records a church, the church of Jerusalem, essentially devoid of pettiness, devoid of the little things that divide Christians. They're determined to spread the gospel, even at cost of their lives, cost of their liberty. There's a, a purity and a clarity to the early church at Jerusalem. And you could walk through Paul's membership manifesto of Romans 12 and test the church at Jerusalem with it, they would pass with flying colors. A monumental example of what a real church looks like. They had authentic love, purposeful Christ-likeness, enthusiastic body life, active discipleship, and humble submission. Those are great things. If you read Revelation 2 and 3, it becomes very clear that the Lord Jesus has expectations for his church. As a matter of fact, the church of Ephesus would be called the classic Bible church. They started with sound doctrine and they lost their first what? Love. They were not following Paul's manifesto. Well, effective with our new members from now on, the elders are finishing a new Grace Bible Church membership covenant based on Paul's membership manifesto. It used to be five sentences long. It's going to be two pages, single-spaced. We'll make that available to all current members for you to look at and be aware of. But it accomplishes the purpose of the church. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And if we do that, that in turn will accomplish the commendation from the Lord Jesus, such as he gave to the church of Philadelphia. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. I hope that's our commendation as we seek to be a joyful church family to take all the things we've learned in the last months, put it all together in a manifesto that says, this is who we are, and Lord Jesus, would you use us? Now, this is very useless information to you if you are not under the Lordship of Christ, if you are not certain that you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, this is pointless information for you because how the function in the church isn't, isn't relevant to you because you're not part of the church. The church, capital C, is made up of all who have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I know statistically that sitting in this room may be somebody, one or two, that is not certain that they know Christ. And right now, the Lord is pulling at your heart and you're saying, I'm not sure if I'm a part of this thing that Steve is talking about. I'm not sure I'm a part of that family. I'm not sure that I know Christ. I'm not sure that my sins have been forgiven. I'm not sure that I'm in right standing before God. I'm not sure that I've been justified. I'm not sure that I possess the Holy Spirit. And I'm scared. If that's the pull in your heart right now, don't leave here without knowing him. And you might ask, well, how would I know him? Ask. Just ask. Ask for mercy. Repent of your sin so that you too can be part of the only organization, the only institution that Christ said, this will succeed, and that is the church, his bride. Don't leave today without being a part of this, without being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the clarity of Romans 12. Wow, what a monumental text, Lord. What a tremendous manifesto. We are, we're stunned, Lord, by the detail. We're stunned by the, the scope, the depth, the breadth of how you would have us function as members in the body of Christ. Oh, we are thankful to you, Lord, for these believers who meet here on Young Street, and we've, by our tradition, named ourselves Grace Bible Church, but we're just those who meet here together, and we've covenanted together. We've We've, we've made a covenant together to fellowship with one another, to serve together. Lord, we do have needs within our church. We have those who are ill and those who need fellowship and those who need help. And we certainly have needs, Lord, within some of our ministries. I pray particularly for our children's ministry. Lord, we need our members to step up and to, to fill some of those slots and to proclaim the gospel to those precious ones that would be disciples to lead them to faith in Christ through the word of God, through the gospel proclaimed. Lord, we would ask you in this coming week, as we prepare for celebration Sunday next week, that we would be humble before you, that we would be in prayer, that we would be thankful to be part of a church that you have chosen to bless, that you have chosen to shine your light of favor upon. We pray, Lord, to come together next week with glory and with joy that is unspeakable because a church that is being obedient together can truly celebrate. I pray that would be a glorious day, honoring to Christ and a, a happy time for our church as well. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We pray once again for the man or woman, boy or girl, who has not come to faith. Might this be the day when they relent and repent and come to Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.